in five seconds. Four, three, two, one. It's PNN. I'm your host, Brooke Hines. Uh, tonight, we've got our It's Finally Over uh, episode of the show. Uh, we have uh, Rick Spizak. We'll be talking to Dennis Campbell from Across the Pond on uh, things having to do with the election and their uh, COVID vacation, I guess, that they're getting over there. I guess that's they just do everything nicer over there so they they get a covid vacation while we get um the covid apocalypse um we also have janine maloff with uh she's going to be really happy that um joe biden won the election i know that um things were a little touch and go there for a while but um so joe biden won I think that the justice report might be full of more justice goodness as we go forward. At least I hope so. But tonight she will be talking about um, lies, damn lies and statistics. Uh, She's, uh, you know, really, she'll be talking about Nate Silver and uh, how horse race reporting manipulates the public. That is very apropos to uh, to what's going on these days. And um, I've got a lot of election coverage, so um, you know we could we could we could just get right to it with the beat. So uh, who's gonna who's who's volunteering to move Joe Biden left? That's that's my question. Uh, now that we got him, what are we gonna do with him? Uh, all of this remains to be seen. I suppose in the next week or so, we are going to start seeing his uh, um, cabinet picks, and that should be interesting. I don't know about you, but I remember in two thousand and eight when. Uh, Barack Obama's cabinet pick started to filter out and it was all Wall Street guys and people from Citibank and so on and so forth and and then uh, you know everyone tried to say oh it's the team of rivals just like Abraham Lincoln and um, you know what it was nothing like Abraham Lincoln and it was nothing like team of rivals and 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 I having lived through that i'm i'm starting to wonder if the first team of rivals was even a thing because i don't see how that could ever be a thing um moving joe biden left moving you might as well be saying moving the country left or moving the sun and the moon um uh we've been moving people left since uh since i've been doing politics in the 80s since about 1982 
we've been trying to move people left. So I don't have a lot of hope in the project of this, this, this moving people left project. But, um, but I, I, I do have uh, faith in the work that grassroots people do. And nowhere can you better see the 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 work of the grassroots than in ballot measures uh, nationwide, and so I'm sure you're all aware that Florida passed $15 minimum wage at a time when uh, Joe Biden lost badly. He was trounced. He was shellacked. He was his his bottom was beaten beat red uh, in Florida um, by by MAGA voters. Um, but we got a $15 minimum wage. And I actually saw people on social media trying to say that uh, $15 minimum wage was actually a white working class issue and therefore racist because I guess like uh, disingenuous hacks are going to make disingenuous hacky kinds of uh, assessments of this um, election. Uh uh, you know, some people's uh, hypocrisy knows no bounds, and this is one area where where that is definitely the case. Montana, South Dakota, Arizona, and New Jersey all legalized marijuana. Colorado passed 12 weeks of paid family leave. These are all ballot measures that, that won, you know, in an election where, uh, you know, Biden barely eked out a uh, a, a win. Okay, <laughs> we got all these things. Then Arizona passed taxes on the rich to fund education, and all over America, voters approved a progressive agenda. Now Congress must act. Um, another interesting tidbit is that. Uh, do, 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 do. AOC, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, and uh, I'll be talking about this a little bit in a few minutes, but uh, she points out in in a New York Times interview that, quote, every single candidate that co-sponsored Medicare for All in a swing district kept their seat. And I want you to think about that as the Lincoln Project Oh, there's Lincoln again, like that team of rivals, Lincoln. Uh, everyone is is uh, out there, you know, going, boo, there's socialism and it's super scary and blah, blah, blah. Well, you know, uh, going back to these ballot measures, uh, Colorado passed 12 weeks of paid family leave. Is that scary socialism? Florida passed a $15 minimum wage. Is that scary socialism? Arizona, you know. Uh, Maricopa County, you know, uh, Sheriff Joe Arpaio, uh, that Arizona increased taxes on the rich to fund education. That is that is almost exactly what like what happened in the in when the Bolsheviks took over. That is that is that's almost exactly like like the No, it's nothing like that. It's it, it's. It's like what you do in the United States if you want to have a, a, a functioning society. Also, uh, there was a major grassroots efforts in Maine that passed a, a slate of incredibly progressive um, uh, policy issues. Everywhere you look, there was um, there was a 
all kinds of good things to come out of this election for progressives if it was on the ballot as a ballot measure. And uh, if you had members of Congress or, or leaders who were who were pushing it, like AOC uh, or Rashida Tlaib or Ilhan Omar, um, all of that good stuff was, was happening everywhere. And then as soon as the uh, election is won, and uh, uh, people are, you know, out dancing in the streets and um, declaring on social media that they no longer need their antidepressants. Swear to God, I saw that today. And I just wanted to, you know, take someone by the collar and say, do not, do not (laughs) stop taking your medication because Donald Trump is no longer in office. That is a... There is no clearer sign that you need to be taking that medicine than by being on social media saying that you don't need to be taking it because Donald Trump is no longer in office. Oh, my God. The whole country has lost its mind. It lost its mind way before this election, and it lost its mind way before COVID. But, you know, right now, all of that is just sort of like on parade, just absolutely, you know, here we go. Everyone's nuts. Um so I don't blame them. You know, I don't I, I don't blame people for for losing their minds a little bit. You know, um, I do blame them for the last four years of you know, of Russiagate and all of this nonsense uh, around Donald Trump's um, being elected is uh, as, as you might have noticed. The Russians did not interfere in this election. I wonder why that is. Could it be because they really didn't uh, interfere in the last election and it was just this cooked up you know thing that msnbc and and uh you know a couple of um uh ex-intelligence professionals you know were were pushing on us maybe maybe that's what it was i don't know i don't know no 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 i'm, I'm pretty sure that's exactly what it was um <clears throat> There is a lot of stupidity happening right now. Uh, um, NPR's Mara Liason, this is Marion Williams uh, tweeting this out. NPR's Mara Liason yesterday said, quote, the left will simply have to be patient and take what it can. And uh, Marianne says, corporatists don't just suppress campaigns. They create narratives and expect the rest of us to buy into them. The left isn't some errant child. It's the biggest grown-up in the room. Thank you, Marianne. You are absolutely right on that. Uh, Here's another. Uh, Barbara Ransby. She says, how dare CNN give a platform to John Kasich, who has no credibility or following, as he lashes out at the very people who offer the most excitement, energy, and hope for the Democratic Party. AOC, Ilhan Omar, Rashida Tlaib, uh, Representative Jayapal, and Representative Presley. Biden did not win this. Movement organizers did. Right on Barbara Ramsey. Um Ryan Grimm over at the Intercept, he says um, he's he's a uh, sub subtweeting Tom Nichols, who says Tom Tom Nichols has has a very bad take. He says uh, having AOC openly opening 
friendly fire on other Dems and insisting on a move to the left when the Senate could hang in the balance on two seats in Georgia falls into the category of the GOP can't believe their good luck that she even exists level of political dominance. And Ryan Grimm says, someone tell Tom that the three-hour conference call earlier this week where her colleagues lined her up to attack her. Uh, I don't know if you're aware of this, but um, Abigail Spanberger, who is a a, a, a member of Congress, House Representatives from Virginia, uh, who... uh, went straight off of eight years in the CIA as a CIA operative to represent a a district in in Northern Virginia. Uh, She got on this conference call, this three-hour conference call, to yell and scream and and cuss, which is generally my job, uh, about um, socialism and and, and, uh, defunding the police. And this is why... This is why... She wanted you to know that this is why centrists lost all across the country. It wasn't because of their own bad policy. It wasn't because of their own inability to get out the vote or provide anything that people actually wanted to vote for. No, it was because other people had, you, you know, you would like to have health care or would like to be paid a, minim- a, a, a living wage minimally. Uh, and, and stuff like that. And uh, we're going to be talking about that a little bit more. So hang on right there and um, we'll be right back. Okay, I just wanted to cue up this piece that I recorded a little bit earlier. This is uh, um, this is our election breakdown for 2020. Okay, so we need to talk about this election. I got this broken up into a couple of bite-sized pieces. First thing I want to put out in front of you guys is uh, some stuff that's swirling around Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. She did a remarkable interview with the New York Times on Saturday, and I think that it's something that everybody needs to read, maybe even print it out, maybe tattoo it on your body somewhere, but... Uh, she lays out a roadmap, and it demystifies what's going on behind the scenes in a way that you don't get if you're just listening to MSNBC. I mean, mostly M- M- MSNBC. CNN isn't quite as bad, and almost any other news source is uh, pretty much going to offer some information um, that is usable. I'm to the point where I see MSNBC as worse than what Fox was about in its worst 
years. As a matter of fact, Fox is actually becoming watchable because they've gotten back to, since all of the fallout from the Me Too situation, they've gotten back to some just basic reporting. And uh, you know, that's that's to their credit. So all of this mess has accrued onto the side of and attached itself to MSNBC. And it's a shame. I mean, it used to be a, a valuable outlet, and it just isn't that anymore. I'll be dropping these links into the show notes so that you can follow along. But it's a New York Times article. And also, David Sirota did a good piece uh, responding to this, which describes his uh, appearance on NPR and some of the things that he had to say there. But let's uh, let's open this up with with the uh, with the controversy. So here's here's what's going on right now. If you've been under a rock since the election, is that uh, Republicans from the Lincoln Project and Republicans that are in the Democratic Party. And uh, Republicans everywhere are up in arms about socialism and defunding the police and uh, all of these mysterious bugaboos that have absolutely nothing to do with why centrists lost their races. So, as you know, um, a handful of Democrats, centrist Democrats, lost their reelection and uh, we didn't do any red to blue. We didn't have any red to blue successes. So uh, what happens here is what happens every time there is an election and there are some losses is people try to pin those losses on other people. And that's what's going on right now. And probably the biggest um, spokesperson for this or spokesmodel right now is John Kasich. This would be the same John Kasich who was given an N, uh, DNC speaking slot at the at the convention. He was given a speaking slot bleh, speaking slot by Team Biden, and uh, nevertheless failed to help Democrats win his home state of Ohio. Um, so he went on CNN to bash progressives, insisting that Biden's top priority should be appeasing Trump voters. And here's what that sounded like. Now is the time for Democrats, and I believe Joe Biden will do this, begin to listen to what the other half the country has had to say. But we have to listen to what those folks, those Republicans, all across this country has had to say. The best thing that's happened to Joe Biden is the fact that the United States Senate is either going to be Republican or very close and the far left can push him as hard as they want. And frankly, the Democrats have to make it clear to the far left that they almost cost him this election. And that congresswoman from Virginia warned the Democrats, you want to talk about defunding the police, you'll have no support. And I think this is an opportunity for Biden to talk about, you know, the center right and the center left of this country and what can be achieved. Because we have enormous problems with debt, Social Security, Medicare, health care, little steps, little steps. One other thing, one Democrat told me at some point, if they'd have been more clear in rejecting the hard left, 
they would have appealed more to Americans who I believe essentially live in the middle. So I think actually he's in a better position today because being pulled from the left isn't going to work. They will not get those things done. So right here, you've got a real interesting talking point coming out of Kasich, and that is that it's actually a good thing that the Democrats didn't win the uh, Senate and lost seats in the House. And of course, a Republican operative is going to carry that message. Who do you think these people actually are? Did you actually think that the Lincoln Project, did you actually think that those people are your friends? Because what has happened in this election cycle is uh, the Democratic Party and the Democratic donor class writ large, you know, the corporations that uh, benefit, the special interests that benefit from this kind of transactional politics, they have created this entity in the Lincoln Project that is now poised as as an established uh, uh, media entity It's poised to do nothing but attack Democrats. And supposedly this is supposed to be a good thing. The Lincoln Project set $67 million on fire. They didn't move a single vote. The fabled uh, Republican crossover you know, men that were supposed to go from the Republican Party uh, or women who were supposed to go from the Republican Party over to the Democratic Party. That did not happen. That did not show up in the numbers. But now here's John Kasich thinking that or being empowered to tell Democrats what to do and how to run our party. And I don't understand why that flies. I don't understand why the Democratic Party stands for this. I think that, um, you know, the most cynical view is is probably the correct one, which is that the the party really struggles to square the circle uh, in terms of representing its voters, which it doesn't, and uh, carrying a message, their messaging platform, carrying a message That will attract voters because there's a big divide between the two. The messages that they go out there with uh, often, most of the time, not with Biden. He didn't he didn't bother to to craft a message that was any that promised anything for working Americans. But most of the time, what the Democratic Party tends to do is craft these messages in a way that brings people out to the polls. And then, you know, we can wait a six months or a year or so after the people are in office to get disappointed about that. Um, At least this year, everyone is pretty upfront with no good things are going to happen and nothing fundamentally is going to change except for the fact that the bad orange man is no longer in the white house. So whippy, here we go. That's, that's all done. We can put that behind ourselves now. So for months now, uh, AOC has been an amazing foot soldier for the Democratic Party and for Joe Biden. And she's drawn a lot of fire from it, uh, for it, uh, from the left. Uh, but nonetheless, she persisted. Um, and, uh, and so after everything is said and done, she sits down for this amazing eye-popping interview with uh, the New York Times, and she says that she she drops this 
this one bombshell, it's towards the end, where she lets the interviewer know that she didn't even, she wasn't settled on whether or not she was going to run for re-election this cycle. She says, quote, I don't know if I want to be in politics, you know, for real, in the first six months of my term, I didn't even know if I was going to run for re-election this year. And the interviewer asks, really? Why? And she says, quote, it's the incoming, it's the stress, it's the violence, it's the lack of support from your own party. It's your own party thinking you're the enemy. When your own colleagues talk anonymously to the press and then turn around and say that you're bad for actually having the gall to append your own name to your own opinion. She says further, I chose to run for re-election because I felt like I had to prove that this is real, that this movement was real, that I wasn't a fluke, that people really want guaranteed health care and that people really want the Democratic Party to fight for them. But I'm serious when I tell people the odds of me running for higher office and the high and the odds of me going off trying to start a homestead somewhere, they're probably the same. You know, those are the sentiments. Those are the thoughts of our uh, uh, the the most progressive member of Congress, or at least one of the most progressive members of Congress. That is the way that she is now responding to the culture in Washington and the way that she's projecting that back out to us, her supporters and the voters and to the country at large. It is a, what I would say is a uh, kind of a cry for help that things are really off, that the system is really, really sick. So if you're looking for reasons why, uh, Democrats didn't do as well as they should have done in this cycle. Maybe take a look at this article and maybe take a look at what AOC is saying is ailing the party. So let's dig into that a little bit. First off, she has something really important to say, I think, about identity politics and electoralism. And um, she says right out of the gate, you know, stop expecting uh, uh, race to come along and solve all your electoral issues. You know, we got to stop this magical thinking that if you have the right combination of identity factors uh, within a candidate, that if you just put them up there and uh, don't have a policy to stand on, that that magical person will then therefore automatically win because they check off all these identity boxes. That is, first of all, it's it's incredibly condescending and um, and it should be insulting to most thinking people. But secondly, it's it's a losing strategy. AOC then points out that we also learned that progressive policies do not hurt candidates, that every single candidate that co-sponsored Medicare for all in a swing district kept their seat. And we also know that co-sponsoring the Green New Deal is not a sinker. Mike Levin, who was the original co-sponsor of the legislation, he kept his seat. So AOC is asking for the party to really just be honest about what's going on here and do a post-mortem that is useful. And so when you see people like John Kasich getting out in front of this message, that doesn't do a whole lot in terms of inspiring confidence. 
AOC continues and she says that uh, she's already started looking into the actual functioning of the uh, campaigns that won and lost. And she says, you know, the thing is, I've been unseating Democrats for two years. I have been defeating DCCC run campaigns for two years. And that's how she got into Congress. And that's how we elected Ayanna Presley and Jamal Bowman and Cori Bush. And so we know about extreme vulnerabilities in how Democrats run campaigns. And uh, this is really important for people who are interested in the way that campaigns are run because uh, she kind of drops some some uh, magic knowledge right here. She says uh, some of this is malpractice. Connor Lamb spent $2,000 on Facebook the week before the election. I don't think anyone who is not on the inter- Internet in a real way in the year of our Lord 2020 and loses an election can blame anyone else when you're not even really on the Internet. So this is, by the way, this is this is key. This is something that we've known since uh, Obama ran for, uh, for the first time in 2008 that campaigns have to have a digital strategy and they have to be reaching people online. Uh, in order to be relevant, you're not getting, you're not persuading anyone with television ads at this point. You have got to meet them where they live online. Um, and so she continues. So I've I've looked at a lot of these campaigns that lost, and the fact of the matter is, if you are not spending two hundred thousand dollars on Facebook with fundraising, persuasion, volunteer recruitment, get out the vote. Um, et cetera, the week before the election, you are not firing on all cylinders. And not a single one of these campaigns were firing on all cylinders. So what she's talking about is all of these people who lost, like Donna Shalala and um, uh, Merck Hazel Powell or Purcell. Uh, she's going to cry if I don't pronounce her name right or don't get her name right. But um, who cares? She lost her seat. Um these people did not run good campaigns, uh, and, uh, and and their vulnerabilities are not about some straw man uh, version of socialism or some straw man version of Black Lives Matter. That's not why Donna Shalala lost. These people lost because they ran really awful campaigns, and they're absolutely out of touch with their voters. AOC says... Why were these people vulnerable to attack? Like, like they're really concerned about this. Oh, my God, we got hit with socialism. Well, why were you vulnerable to that? Were you not in front of your own voters? You know, had you not already formed a relationship with them? Had you not already been talking to them? Why were they susceptible to that particular kind of messaging? She says, if you're not door knocking, if you're not on the Internet, if your main points of reliance are the TV and direct mail, then you're not running a campaign on all cylinders. I just don't see how anyone could be making ideological claims when they didn't run a full-fledged campaign. Now, write that down. Write that down and remember it. Because what's happening here is... You've got all of these right-wingers, and you know MSNBC gives them all the time in the world. You've got all these right-wingers who are going out there, and they are attacking uh, you know, working Americans 
You know, first of all, they're they're centering working Americans as the far left, the extreme left. You know, it workers are just workers. All we were looking for is an economic message. There are people who haven't had a paycheck since March. We we've we've seen what twelve hundred dollars in in quote unquote stimulus. Most states, it's almost impossible to get unemployment. We're in the middle of a pandemic. Everyone's lost their, their health care. And you've got these nutballs screaming about socialism. Listen, these are the people who are out of touch. And I know I don't have to tell you that, but I feel like I need to um, at least provide uh, a framework with which um, we can talk about these things with our friends and our family and our colleagues and our peers and so on and so forth. Um, she says, there's a reason Barack Obama built an entire national campaign apparatus outside the Democratic National Committee. And there's a reason that when he didn't activate or continue that, we lost House majorities. And that's that's understating. We lost 1,031 seats nationwide when Obama did not you know, take that OFA structure and actually apply it out to other um, uh, races and other candidacies. She says the party cannot in and of itself does not have it, the core competencies and no amount of money is going to fix that. She says, if I lost my election and went out and said, quote, it's the moderate's fault. This is because you didn't let us have the floor vote on Medicare for all. <laughs> and, uh, and then they opened the hood on my campaign and found out that I only spent $5,000 on TV ads the week before the election, they would laugh. And that's what it looks like right now, trying to, da- trying to blame the movement for black lives for their loss. And think of how grotesque that is, too, you know, to, to, to go after Black Lives Matter. You know, people who are saying nothing more complex than black people should not be killed in their sleep in their own house. Oh my God. How radical is that? Can you imagine if the police were uh, busting down the doors of, you know, suburban whites, you know, middle-class people and just opening fire and, killing everybody can you imagine what that would look like yeah i don't see the movement for black lives as as any kind of radical posturing it is just the bare minimum that society owes us in order to be able to call itself a society I really like this part where she talks about magical thinking. She says there's a lot of magical thinking in Washington, that this is just about uh, special people who come down on high, that year after year uh, we decline the idea that they did the work and ran sophisticated operations in favor of the idea that they are magical special people. She's talking about consultants here, you know. Oh, if we just get the right combination of consultants in, if we just get the, the, the right videographer to shoot your television ads, you know, then, uh, you know, the, the, the right person doing direct mail, then it's all going to just magically come together. And that is not how anything works in any part of life. So I, I, I don't know why anybody would expect that to work in, um, in politics. Uh, she says... 
If you were the DCCC and you're hemorrhaging incumbent candidates to progressive insurgents, you would think that you may want to use some of those, some of their firms. But instead, we banned them. So the DCCC banned every single firm that is the best in the country at digital organizing. The leadership and elements of the party, frankly, people in some of the most important decision-making positions in the party, are becoming so blinded to this anti-activist sentiment that they are blinding themselves to the assets that we have to offer. She says, I've been begging the party to let me help them for two years. That's also the damn thing about it. I've been trying to help. Before the election, I offered to help every single swing district Democrat with their operation. And every single one of them, except for five, refused my help. And all five of the vulnerable swing district people that I helped secured victory or on a path, are now on a path to secure victory. There's uh, one or two that are still very close. And every single one that rejected AOC's help is now losing. I mean, I'm, I'm seeing a pattern here. Um, so if you rejected the, uh, the offer from AOC, you know, to help you, and you're losing, then you go out and you attack the zeitgeist, I guess. You just attack voters for being socialist or whatever, um, and uh, and you completely ignore the fact that you know people who went ahead and ran good races and worked with everybody that they could work with, uh, who was offering help, that they actually won. I mean, this is this is just absolute madness. Davis Sirota puts a finer point on it. He says Democratic leaders are insisting that the party abandon moderately progressive health care positions in order to boost the party's chances in Georgia, even though polling says exactly the opposite. Now, this is something that I think is uh, is is kind of weird. Um, since the election was called for Joe Biden, there has been a multi-tiered effort to blame Disappointing election results on progressives, even as exit polls and voting results show that progressive organizing rescued Democrats from the jaws of a presidential defeat. While the country was celebrating the defeat of Trump, uh, here's what you know the, the, the Democratic Party was doing. They were going after progressives. They were going after the people who actually snatched victory from the jaws of defeat. We won in Michigan because we had great grassroots uh, efforts from Rashida Tlaib. And we run, won uh, a lot of the, the blue wall because we had people like Ilhan Omar and Rashida Tlaib and, and uh, you know, a lot of these uh, uh, squad efforts out there making sure that people got out the vote. So here's what's going on right now. You probably remember when Obama won and... Uh, he pretty quickly announced a slate of cabinet um, positions, uh, cabinet appointments that pretty much shocked people. You know, as it was all of these uh, corporate people and and uh, Wall Street folks. Well, Biden's getting ready to announce uh, his cabinet appoint appointments, and uh, you know. Who are these guys going to be? Well, Politico published a list of the front runners, and uh, most of the front runners are either corporate-friendly Democrats or 
corporate-friendly Republicans. There's a lot of Republicans on this list. The American Petroleum Institute and the U.S. Chamber of Commerce are publicly offering to work with the Biden administration, pledging a desire to, quote, support bipartisan policies and, quote, break through the gridlock. Also, GOP operatives at the Lincoln Project um, explore turning their operation into a media empire and uh, have started attacking AOC, as we just uh, talked about. And uh, Democratic leaders in the uh, House Blue Dog Caucus, the corporate wing of the party, have spent the week attacking progressives, blaming them for a handful of moderate freshman lawmakers' losses, even as data show Democrats in swing districts lost vote share as they moved further and further to the right. Now, I want to talk about something specific to Florida, uh, just following up on this last issue here, that the data show that um, Democrats in swing districts lost the vote share as they moved further and further to the right. In South Florida, where Donna Shalala and um, Mercastle Powell lost, uh, you can't call their campaigns uh, further and further right. Like, they basically didn't have a campaign. You know, they, there there wasn't a serious uh, effort to to uh, win re-election. They thought that they were just going to win re-election. That that just happens, and uh, and so they 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 got a quite the wake up call. Now, something that's been going on in Florida politics for at least since 2018, I first saw it with the Andrew Gillum campaign, is that there's been a a, a push uh, with the uh, party machine to uh, to court what I what I've seen called as the MAGA Swalen vote, MAGA Swalen. So uh, of course in Florida we have uh, you know a lot of immigrant population from Central and South American countries that have a, a right-wing dictatorships or are moving towards right-wing dictatorships or death squads or whatever. It just seems like all those right-wingers wind up in Florida. Um, they're, uh, and, and so the, there's a good amount of, of Venezuelan population in South Florida. This is not Cubans. These are Venezuelans that um you know want to go back to Venezuela and go pick up their their money or their bags of gold or whatever it is that they have stashed up there and uh and they want someone to fight this coup for them you know they they want the United States to go in and invade Venezuela or have the CIA do it and you know go and go and get their loot and Trump proved to be pretty incompetent at that. There was a couple of attempts to, you know, with Juan Guaido and a, and a couple of attempts with these uh, um, security contractors. Uh, it's just laughable. They, it, it was a, a miserable failure, a fiasco all the way around. Now, um, these people went and voted for Trump. These were Trump voters, and we were told by the party over and over and over again that we have to have a super right-wing posture on all things having to do with Central and South America because, you know, we have to think of those voters. 
Well, those voters were always going to vote for Donald Trump, and they were very happy to vote for Donald Trump. And that is actually who they are. You know, they are they are right wingers. I have no problem if if the party wants to, in addition to securing the vote of the base, if they want to, after that, go and uh, see if they can pick up a few votes from MAGA people, whether they're Venezuelan or Colombian or uh, from Bolivia or from the Bronx, they're they're more than welcome to do that. But they they really need to do their basic work first. And the basic work is to turn out the base, which you don't hear this anymore. You don't hear Democrats ever talk about uh, turning out the base. You hear that they want to reach over for Republican votes or they want to go over, go way over someplace else and go find new voters that may or may not exist. Uh, they're, they've, they've absolutely lost their mind. Um, I mean, it's not irrational. What they're trying to do is um, make sure that the people who have money keep their money. And, you know, they're, they're going to lie, cheat, and steal to make sure that that happens. So Sirota points out that this election was way closer than it should have been um, and that Biden eked out a, a, a victory pretty much because of COVID. Yeah, that, it, that that if it wasn't for COVID, he wouldn't have won because he absolutely lacked an economic message in a year when you absolutely needed to have some sort of economic message. Because right behind COVID comes the COVID depression. And we are going to be feeling, uh, in addition to the people who have been out of work up until now, we are all going to start to be feeling the pressure of this economic downturn. And I know that I heard repeatedly from inside the Biden campaign that uh, people were discouraged. They were discouraged from talking about policy at all, period. So if you were a volunteer on the Biden campaign and you were like doing texts, you were doing calls or, or whatever it is that you do, um, there wasn't any door knocking. So, that, you know, they, they didn't have that to worry about. Uh, and uh, and a prospect asked you about policy, you were supposed to pivot back to personality. They did not want to talk about policy at all. And so everyone should see it as pretty ironic that all of a sudden, uh, you, you know, the the people associated with the with the Biden campaign from the from the right, you know, the the so-called Biden Republicans, all of a sudden really want to make a big noise. The reason why that is is because they were a miserable failure. Um, Sirota writes, uh, the focus on trying to uh, moderate a message in order to attract so-called Biden Republicans was a failure. The data show that the better strategy is to pull out your own voters and voters who have not been voting. And I do think the Democrats did a decent job of that. But the amount of money, and we're talking about tens of millions of dollars that went into focusing on trying to appeal to a mythical Republican swing voter, the data shows that that was not a good strategy. What the voters really needed to see was an economic message, and the Democrats paid a price for not having any kind of economic message. 
Uh, Sarita says, uh, I do think the Biden campaign was shrewd in some of what it did, focusing on the pandemic. But without having a strong economic message repeated over and over, you saw an exit poll that showed Donald Trump won 82 percent of voters who said the economy was their top issue. And I think everybody is landing on this part of the assessment right here. So where does this leave us for 2022 and 2024. Generally, what happens in the next election after a new uh, president is elected, generally what happens is the electorate swings to the other party. So we're already barely uh, up in numbers in the House. We, we barely hold a majority in the House. It's uh, uncertain what's going on in the Senate. If, if we win a majority in the Senate, it's going to be razor thin. And what we would expect to see is uh, more losses in 2022. So we have to get really creative and we have to bring our A game and we have to be uh, hitting on all cylinders in order to run up those numbers in 2022. What the data shows, far from what John Kasich is claiming, the uh, data shows that the Democrats' weak economic message hugely helped Donald Trump. The data shows that people don't love the Affordable Care Act. The data shows that the uh, um, Lincoln Project and Rahm Emanuel embarrassed themselves. You know, we didn't have a big surge in the Biden Republican. Um, and the data also shows that uh, um, uh, the Democrats' calculations on the Supreme Court nomination were wildly wrong when uh, Trump nominated uh, right-wing extremist Amy Coney Barrett to the Supreme Court. The conventional wisdom was that Democrats shouldn't seriously combat the nomination because the court fight would primarily motivate conservative voters. But exit polls showed that that was false. Sixty percent of voters said the court was a significant factor in their vote, and a majority of those voters uh, supported Biden. And he barely spoke up against the nomination. If we had actually mounted a fight for the Supreme Court, you know, that might have looked different. When it comes to the ACA, uh, its support is vanishingly thin. Only 14% of people said they want to leave the law as it is, while 40% of people would like to improve it. When those same voters are asked uh, if they would support... uh, a uh, health care system that allowed Americans to buy into a government-run health care program, that was supported to the tune of 71% of people uh, embracing that idea. When you break that number into Democrats versus Republicans, Democrats support that message to the tune of 87%. That's as close to consensus as you are ever going to get in the United States. And it is precisely that message that all of these talking heads right now are out there, you know, on cable news talking about how we have to stop talking about this. Stop talking about Medicare for all. Stop talking about giving people health care because that's supposedly socialism and it's super unpopular and it totally turns people away from uh, away from the polls. And you know what? That is absolute horseshit and uh and i i hope you guys aren't falling for it i'm pretty sure you aren't um 
you probably wouldn't listen to this show if if you were falling for that kind of nonsense. But anyway, there it is. All right. We're going to take a quick break and we'll be back and we're going to look at some stuff going on in Florida's races. What happened in Florida? More on that in a minute. Okay, so some interesting things have happened in Florida during this election and in the aftermath. Uh, One of the things that everyone is talking about or should be talking about is that in Florida, while uh, Joe Biden lost uh, to uh, the MAGA vote here, uh, the $15 minimum wage ballot measure that was put up by John Morgan it was a amendment two on our ballot that passed with uh, more than uh, in Florida you need sixty percent of the vote for it to pass and this voted with something in in the seventies I believe so it was a it was a dramatic success the actual ballot measure but the way that these ballot measures should actually work in terms of electoral politics is that the party has to embrace them and promote them and uh, rally the uh, their candidates around them. And this year, that didn't happen. This year, the Democratic Party refused or just didn't, you know, just forgot, just didn't endorse the minimum wage increase. And... Everybody knows why they did. Like, like they're 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 out there on Twitter and they're talking to their favorite um, political journalists or whatever reporters. Um, but we all know what happened. It's because they're beholden to uh, to the Chamber of Commerce, to Associated Industries, to the familiar panoply of, of lobbyists and. Um, other shady characters in Tallahassee, and uh, and uh, and they got called out for it. So uh, you're probably familiar with um, State Representative Anna Escamani. She's been on the show a couple times. Uh, she got into a Twitter back and forth with Florida Democratic Party Executive Director Juan Panalosa. And, uh, and it was really nice because for once we actually got to see what some truth looks like when it just sort of sneaks out into the discourse. And uh, this happened, of course, this happened on Twitter. All the good things happen on Twitter. You can't really uh, keep track of things when they happen on Facebook. And, you know, best wishes to everybody who spends time on, on Facebook. But, you know, God love you. So here's what happens. Uh, Anna Eskamani told a reporter, and it was reported that on the minimum wage increase, Eskamani said it was a mistake for Democrats to not openly endorse Amendment 2. She says that caring about working people should be a fundamental part of the Democratic Party. And Anna went on to Twitter to say, I did say that, and she did like the little emoji with the uh, um, nail polish. 
Uh, and she said Florida Dems have said they included a, quote, recommendation of Amendment 2 on their online slate card that was texted to voters. And she says, I appreciate that. But we all know it's not the same as endorsing, promoting and campaigning on it and then calling out Republicans who are actively against it. And that's what's key is that you are heightening the contrast between yourself and the other party. But there are members of the Democratic Party who do not want you to heighten those differences. And Juan Penalosa, who is the executive director, um, it seems to be one of those people. Uh, also, Ben Palera, who worked on uh, Amendment 2 and also on uh, John Morgan's medical marijuana ballot measures, ballot initiatives. He uh, He's, you know, big lobbyist and stuff and, you know, man about the hill, uh, you know, and, uh, you know, he doesn't want to he doesn't want to do anything to inconvenience any of these corporate interests. So he's very careful not to, you know, even as somebody who is uh, whose job it is to get amendment to pass, to get $15 minimum wage passed, he wasn't going to make a big deal about it, I guess, because, you know, I, I guess uh, maybe some people wouldn't notice. Does this $15 minimum wage make my ass look big? I don't know. And by the way, you can tell that Ben Polera is just uh, caught flat-footed because in this Twitter exchange with Anna, he says, I understand the inclination to shit on at Florida Dems right now, and they may or may not deserve it. But please don't use the minimum wage campaign as a cudgel with which to beat them. It's not fair or accurate. Anna Kambaks and says, that's not what I'm hearing from voters, and it doesn't seem to be what John Morgan Esquire thinks. And it's not what our, quote, top Democrat did. And by top Democrat, uh, Anna's referring to Nikki Freed, who, uh, who is the agriculture commissioner that is the top democrat in the state of florida if you can imagine uh nikki freed is a lobbyist has always been a lobbyist since she uh, graduated from uf she's done nothing else but be a lobbyist and being the commissioner uh, commissioner of agriculture ag commissioner that's basically you know carrying on that lobbying uh, uh in that same capacity you know, you're, you're essentially still a lobbyist. And, uh, you know, so there's no bigger friend of Big Sugar than Nikki Freed. She is Big Sugar's, you know, big sister. She wants to know that anything they want, she's going to make sure that it happens. And so with our top Democrat in the state, we have somebody who is, it, 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 and it, it, as relates to everything having to do with the environment, uh, we have somebody who, in, who is in the top seat who is actually not very good for Democratic values and Democratic principles. And Anna does a really good job of calling everyone out on this. And by way of calling everyone out on this, Anna let everybody know that she's going to be running for governor in 2022. Now, that's going to be really interesting because the slate of people who are who have um, come out and said that they want to run or have suggested that they want to run include um, Nikki Freed, uh, Val Demings. Stephanie Murphy, Annette Tadeo, uh, we have Jason uh, 
Pizzo from South Florida. Dan Gelber is always on. Philip Levine is always on. Uh, the only people who really stand out on this are Annette Tadeo and Anna Escamani. And right now, my money is on Anna. That is that is who I think has the has the beans to you know pull this off in a year when Democrats are not going to be winning much anywhere. And after this embarrassing, this mortifying defeat that we just had in Florida, we better pull something out in 2022. We cannot go through 2022 and lose again. But but I'll tell you, you know, people for years have been saying, oh, no, it's going to be 2026 until we can put anybody into office that 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 we actually care about and blah, 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 blah. And and don't write off uh, Andrew Gillum. You know, he's going to come back from therapy or whatever, and he's going to win a race somewhere somehow i really hope it's not the governor's race you know god bless you andrew gillum i'm glad everything is working out for you in your personal life at this point or whatever but if you're going to resume political life try resuming political life in a capacity where you've got a project you can do the project we can see the the uh, uh, process and the progress on that particular project and then determine whether or not we want to keep you around for anything else. You know, at this point, in other words, at this point, uh, I don't think anybody should be embracing Andrew Gillum because Andrew Gillum's brand is amazing for the Democratic Party in Florida. It's not. His brand is a disaster for folks in Florida. We need new people. We need new ideas. We need new faces. We do not need to go and retread those old um, uh issues and problems that that we had with Gillum that it'd be like bringing Bill Nelson back to run against uh, to do a rematch with 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 Rick Scott nobody wants that and in Anna Eskimoni we have somebody who actually puts her money where her mouth is like uh, literally puts her money where her mouth is uh, uh, during the whole COVID crisis Anna has been using her office to help Floridians get unemployment benefits. And Florida is one of the worst states to uh, try to be unemployed in. She's been helping person by person in constituent services, helping people get uh, get their unemployment, uh, whether it's been unintentional through a, a bureaucratic snafu or whatever. But she's been making sure that people get their assistance. And sometimes she's actually been reaching into her own damn pockets and making sure that people have what they need so that is the kind of person that Anna Escamani is she is somebody who actually cares she is somebody who understands grassroots organizing she's someone who understands politics as as they uh, exist in the wild you know and not this like magical thinking kind of politics that people seem to be enthralled with these days and uh, I would be just absolutely thrilled if on Eskimani ran for governor in 2022 and I would be right there um, being the uh, biggest cheerleader that would make me extremely happy so we've got this to look forward to coming up
in 2022 on Eskamani running for governor, and it's going to be glorious. Alrighty, now uh, we've got Dennis Campbell in conversation with Rick Spizak, and they're talking about everything having to do with the election and COVID over in the UK and just the general state of stuff. That's a nice chat. Hope you enjoy. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, I'd like to introduce Mr. Dennis Campbell, uh, international author, commentator, and journalist. Uh, Dennis, welcome. To Professor Thank you, sir. It's good to be here. So, uh, <laughs> I guess the question today is, will he go gently into that good night, huh? Um, I want to be a little bit uh, optimistic here and say he's more worried about his reputation than anything else and how people view him. And if he's somehow convinced that this course of action will harm his presidency, his legacy, and everything else, no matter how bad it feels and how you know much he feels aggrieved, um, he won't go to the he won't go to the inauguration. You know, he won't be gracious like Obama was and say, "Come on over, let's start." But he will go quietly, and I think that's about the best we can hope for with this asshole. I, I, I absolutely hope you're right, brother. I absolutely hope you're right. I, I'm I mean, Biden's Biden's remarks this week were such in which he said, you know, uh, you know, the government knows how to deal with trespassers. I thought that was absolutely <laughs> fucking brilliant on his part to just say, yep, nope, you're out. Goodbye now. Don't let the door hit you on the way out. How's the lockdown going? Uh, I know Boris and the boys have uh, upped the ante on that. Uh, do you have the degree of idiocy and, and uh, obfuscation that we have over here? I mean, I was told the other day by a, a local vendor, you know, we got into our new house and we were hiring trash service and uh, when we brought this gentleman into our house to sign the contract he's he looks at the two of us wearing masks and he says well you know come election day uh, you won't need those anymore because all that talk about viruses will be over <laughs> and my wife and Idiots. I thought you know we're not going to argue with the guy I mean if he's that <clears throat> stupid uh, that uh, that I don't know what insensitive, stupid, whatever you want to call it. Brainwashed, part of the cult. Yeah, brainwashed. <laughs> so, so we just nodded, and he said, "Because you see," and this is where it got really funny. He said, "You see, I don't believe in any of that virus stuff. I'm not a socialist, and besides," said the trash man. Besides, he said, "If I ever become a millionaire, I don't want anybody messing with my money." Well. I tell you what, Mr. 55-year-old trash collector, the chances of you having that problem are mighty slim. And I, I never thought I would hear a grown-up person actually make that argument that they're so in danger of becoming a millionaire that they're worried about their tax portfolio. 
the stupid is strong. And it, it just, it used to amaze me, but it doesn't anymore. Uh, Laura Ingram gave a hint last night that he's not going to win. <laughs> she suggested that Trump may lose. And uh, he said, if, if and when it's time to accept an unfavorable outcome, we hope it never comes. President Trump needs to do it with the same grace and composure he demonstrated at that town hall with Savannah Guthrie. I'm thinking, okay. The only reason he showed grace and composure was because she had a mute button and she'd shut his ass off if he got too far out of line. So I just, I find it, you know, ridiculous that people who watch Trump 24-7, Fox 24-7 and Trump have an altered state of reality. And it's very powerful because so many of them do. And now he's going to launch his own network probably when he gets out to compete with them. And, and I just look at what Sinclair has done, what OANN has done, what Fox has done, and the dumbing down of America is complete. On the positive side, considering all the shenanigans from voter roll suppression to shutting down polls to limiting access to turning in ballot locations, uh, killing so many people slowing down the post office, he still got enough to win. That's, you know, can you imagine what the real tally was really like? Well, yeah, I mean, the fact, and don't, let's, let's also not forget DeJoy, who I believe the judge is so pissed off is going to throw him in jail, and he should. You know, DeJoy running that United States Postal Service into the ground directly disobeying a court order to scan and make sure all the ballots are in. Now we're going to follow our own system. It's like the guy tries to stick a middle finger up to, you know, authority and realizes that was a bridge too far now. I hope you like your orange jumpsuit. Um, but it is incredible. I mean, democracy was the winner. We went from 137 million votes four years ago to 160, maybe 170, when all the counting's done. Uh, you know, Joe managed on the popular vote side to be four million votes ahead, which is a million more than Hillary got. I'm stunned that Trump went from 62 to 69. I always thought his ceiling was 62. Uh, so, you know, to add seven million, that's scary that there's that many people that support him and his message of hatred and, and, and. So uh, it, was, it was truly remarkable to see the level of turnout, the dedication of people to really just get out there and make something happen. And uh, hats off to everybody that braved lines, that went out early, that listened. And, uh, you know, it's, it's just astonishing to see that level of people, you know, that level of, of turnout and dedication. And I think the, the real stars of the Democratic Party this year are Stacey Abrams in Georgia and Pete Buttigieg. And, you know, Pete is, if I were in Biden's shoes, I'd be looking at Pete very as my chief of staff because he's unflappable. He knows exactly what has to happen. He can manage traffic in and out, um, you know, can do what needs to be done as a good spokesman for the organization. I mean, compare him side by side with Meadows, 
who, by the way, now has COVID. That happened yesterday. Yeah. And, you know, it's not going to be a partisan free-for-all. You're going to have somebody running things that make sure the trains arrive and depart on time and make certain that there's a real gatekeeper system so that people can't just walk in and out of the oval whenever they damn well feel like it, which is what happens now. And, you know, that Kamala Harris will be the first in the room and the last in the room gives him the rock and consistency that Obama had with Biden. So I'm optimistic that things are going to get done. And I think people are going to be pleasantly surprised. And I was listening to Beschloss, uh, Michael Beschloss, the, the presidential historian, and he said, every time there's been a very razor-thin close election that's led to astounding presidencies. Uh, and, uh, you know, he, he talked about Kennedy in 60 and Reagan in 80 and, you know, that, that they ended up being very solid and, and being able to get things done. And with a divided government as divided as it is, although none of that is settled yet, I mean, we win those two runoffs, it's a 50-50 and Kamala is the tying, you know, casts the, the, uh, the vote to untie. You're going to have to force people to the table if that's the if that's the um, the situation that we end up with on 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 January sixth when when that election is over, and I'm excited about that because I was talking to somebody. Oh, I was on a a, a radio program in China on Wednesday on a half hour panel discussion. And I saw this guy was on there who was a Republican. And, you know, your initial thought is, oh, shit, another Democrat versus Republican food fight. I had two of those on BBC, three of those on BBC. And, you know, they're just, they don't accomplish anything. And the people that the Republicans send are idiots when they come over here. They just don't understand. And they feel they have to educate people when they get on the airwaves. You know, I'm going to teach you how our system works. It's like, you know, it's just so condescending and so um, ridiculous. Uh, but this guy was a moderate Republican. And it was a good discourse. It didn't get personal. There were no talking points. There was no BS. And I thought, that's the way it should be. And we were we were talking to each other. Someone, you know, complimented him on his LinkedIn post about having been on it, and he mentioned me by name. And I just said, you know, it it was really encouraging. Yes, we disagree on policy, but we're not disagreeable to one another or as human beings. And I think we've lost that. And I made the comparison that you know it was like Teddy Kennedy and Edward Brooke. Teddy Kennedy being the liberal lion of the, the, the Democratic Party in Massachusetts, the, the, the senior senator, and Edward Brooke, the first African-American Republican senator, a very moderate gentleman, and on the Senate floor and in policy discussions, they fought like cats and dogs, and then when they got off the Senate floor, they went and had a drink together. You know, Tip O'Neill and Reagan, people you never thought would come together for any reason, fought for their positions and for their policies. At the end, they genuinely liked each other. And I think we've lost that because we've become so polarized. Everybody into your camps, get into the mattresses, lock your grenades at the other side, see how much carnage you can cause along the way. And 
I think America's tired for, of that. You know, the reason the Lincoln Project, yes, it was self-serving, but I think the reason it really hit home for so many with the various adverts and the and, and the policies that they that they promoted was that they realized that the way the Republican Party and Trumpism is set up right now, it is a prescription for continued disaster. And if you can get something that comes behind it that is healing, because Joe is essentially a healer. I, I can't think of a better person for that role right now. Yes, the Bernies, the Berners are saying Bernie would have beat him. No, they wouldn't. He would have had a huge drumming, worse than what Hillary had, because there's no way even the moderate Republicans would get behind Bernie. They'd just stay home. You know what I mean? And I just thought it'd be nice to see if we could get Bernie into the cabinet. It'd be nice to see if we could see some of those ideas come through in the various other departments. I'd love to see a cabinet that looks more like America today, not a group of white men or rich and privileged white women. And uh, an improvement. I mean, I was one of the guys on one of the BBC interviews. His last question was, "Well, Joe Biden has said he's only going to run for one term, and would you support Kamala Harris in 2024?" And I said, "Well, first of all, it's news to me. I've not heard him say he's only going to run for one term. And secondly, can we get through this election first before we start worrying about what may or may not happen in 2024?" I mean, I'm really tired of the perpetual campaign that starts on the 21st of January. It ha I mean, Trump literally filed for re-election on the first day of his term in office, and I thought, that's absurd. You, you, you need a couple of years under your belt to then be able to make an announcement, and, you know, he's been running a perpetual campaign because he likes his rallies. Let me ask you to turn to Europe for a second. The Brexit deal is supposed to be finalized uh, early next year, correct? It's supposed to be finalized now. It goes into effect January 1. Yeah, that's what um, I mean. Where is it going? I, I don't hear anybody. It's not going anywhere. It's not going anywhere. We're going to crash out. It's going to be a horrible situation. You know, I've, I've noticed something with both Tories and Republicans. They can't govern. They can't do anything that's important. All they can do is stand up and make demagogic speeches that, you know, attack, 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 attack. But when it comes to actually putting policy together and doing something, they can't do it. I mean, I look at the last four years in your country, my country, and, you know, and I think, my God, what has been accomplished? Nothing. The economy is crashing. COVID is out of control. And I think they're just letting it happen because they don't know how to do it. And we have much of the same going on over here. I mean, they finally on Tuesday started a month-long lockdown. We're supposed to come out of lockdown on Monday, the 9th. I don't understand, and I can't see that happening because numbers are still going through the roof. You know, I got into our supermarket, Tesco, and people were acting like idiots. And you'd never know based on their behavior that we're in one of the highest percentage areas there in Bridge End. People aren't social distancing. They're running all over the store. They don't give a crap who's in their way or what. And I just keep thinking to myself, get me out of here safely, please. I needed only three items. I got my three items. I got the hell out of there. And I was just stunned at the... You know, it was almost like your, 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 your story earlier of your trash guy, you know, wanting to, uh, was, was laughing at you because you're wearing a mask. I'm like, yeah, I mean, 
I don't go anywhere without this thing, okay? I mean, it's always on. I mean, I sometimes put it on as soon as I head out the door to get in the car, even though I'm going to be driving by myself, because I just... I feel safer. Our numbers, even after a two-week lockdown here, are still too high. And it should be extended, and it should be on the same timetable as England. But, you know, Wales and England are, are like the Yankees and the Red Sox. If one likes something, there's no way the other is going to do it. And I just find I find that level of back and forth ridiculous. I, I heard numbers are skyrocketing in France. Uh, Everywhere. Obviously, the, the tourist is getting another hit. Um, you know, we hear so much that there's a you know a, a move afoot in in the UK to uh, privatize the health service. Uh, is that put in abeyance during the COVID crisis? Is there more funding coming to it, or is it is it uh, let's muddle along and and do as little as we can? Well, there's three questions there, and the answer to all three is yes. Uh, you know, I mean, I think they are still probably going to try and privatize as much of it as they can. There's very little that can be done to stop them. That's part one. Part two, we're in big trouble. I mean, there was just a big story this morning about the nursing crisis that is there because nurses are burned out with all the COVID. I mean, the field hospitals that are being set up and the fact that we're, you know, not even into the winter yet, that this is the 7th of November and hospitals are full. And what are they going to do when the flu season and the COVID season hit at the same time? Where are they going to put people? How are they going to take care of people? And, you know, they're going to be, there are going to be death panels, just like we used to talk about, you know, in the States and, and here and everywhere because of, you know, if you're if you're well into your 60s, hello, <laughs> you know, and there's a there's a 30-something person with this disease, they're going to get the attention and care, and the rest of us are just going to have to fend for ourselves. I mean, that's why I've lost 20-something kilos, and worked my ass off to get my blood sugars from 84 to 52, just three points out of the diabetes range, and it's critical to take care of myself because I'm not certain anyone is going to be able to take care of me when we get closer and closer to where we are. So I'm very worried about it and I, I'm, I'm not sure where this all ends, to be honest. I have heard now that wiser heads have been talking about late 2021 or maybe 22 before there is a, a realistic treatment available that might be distributed to the public. Do you see any is I assume that there is an equal race to the antivirus or the virus treatment in the UK is here. Um, is is it in wide publicity? Are they dependent on European and American uh, sources? Uh, what's the, the effort like in the UK? Well, one of the most promising trials of the vaccine has been the uh, the Oxford University trial which is in its final stages. It's a global trial. It's been supported by British pharmaceutical company GlaxoSmithKline. And they've ordered 90 million vials of the vaccine. So for those that want it, I think, you know, initially it's going to be us older folks that get the, the vaccine because we are the most at risk as well as frontline people. So I'm optimistic that by the spring, early summer, it's going to be available for all of us. Uh, it's showing signs 
of, of developing antibodies, which is, which is crucial for the immune system. It's showing very positive signs throughout. And uh, I can see it happening and ramping up very, very quickly over here. Um, I don't see the United States being able to, to come in and do what they did with, with remdesivir, which by the way is not as um, effective as everybody thought it would be, just like uh, hydroxychloroquine. I mean, it's just, it's like um, Trump bought up the global supply of remdesivir, which basically said anybody that was trying to use that steroidal to help people in very serious trouble lacked one more um, weapon in the toolkit. And, and I just, you know, it, it, the arrogance of the Trump administration has cost them globally and has eliminated trust amongst our allies and partners around the globe because we've proven to be untrustworthy under this guy. And because we elected this guy and damn near elected him a second time, you know, we're literally four years away from going harder right with a despot who knows what he's doing, which scares the living crap out of me. There was an article yesterday, and I think it was in the New York Times or the Washington Post about, you know, yes, he's a despot and he's an autocrat, but he's a bad one, so he doesn't know how to do it. Next time we may not be as lucky. <laughs> and I thought, yeah, yeah uh, that's very true. Very dangerous very, very true. situation. And the next time we may get somebody who actually knows what they're doing, who is a despot. And I thought, man, that's 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 just terrifying. You know, here these guys. Uh, willfully ignorant of any kind of safety procedures, any kind of social distancing, any kind of wearing of masks. How'd you like to have your A-team, such as it is, basically all either coming down with it or down with it as you're approaching the, the biggest crisis of your misadministration? You yeah. know? Well, you know, it's interesting. Meadows. I, I had a, I, um, he's homesick. I had, a, I had a BBC uh, commentator, uh, and we, the, we, the, he was talking to this idiot Republican. I mean, he was, truly, he was truly an idiot who was on the other side. And he was saying, that, well, you know, President Trump drained the swamp and, and did all – and it was just a, a, a long list of Republican talking points. And he got to the end, and uh, he asked me a question. And, of course, I always do this. I always answer the question that's asked. And then I said, and by the way – as for draining the swamp, he didn't drain the swamp. He put a whole bunch of new alligators in there, and he, you know, stocked it with trout, and he made certain that that swamp was going to be around forever, benefiting every member of his cabinet, every member of his family, and they've all been, you know, living off of the government teat and scraping away as much money as they can for themselves, most of all being the Trump organization. And, and, and I just thought, you know, this guy hasn't drained the swamp. He filled it and restocked it. Um, you know, Joe's biggest challenges are going to be the Justice Department, the State Department, and rebuilding HHS. And that, you know, that's the Homeland Security, as well as putting in place the people that he needs to have to fight the pandemic. I mean, that, that's where he has to start, and I know he will. 
you know, rebuild the State Department. How about President Obama as, a, as your sex state? That would be very interesting because he's beloved around the world and nobody can heal relationships there better than he can. I just don't know if he'd want to do it. It's a thankless job with, you know, millions of miles of travel associated with it. And he'd be perfect for it. Uh, justice is always going to require somebody who knows how to put confidence back in there, drain that swamp, that bar and all the idiots before him put there, put in people into those key roles, make sure that he selects, you know, 55 or whatever it is, 57 I think it is, U.S. attorneys for each jurisdiction so that they can go out and prosecute the cases, you know, release the hounds basically that have been sitting back and been stopped by Barr out of fear of going after either Giuliani or Trump, and come what may, you know, I don't think Trump's going to get, in, I don't think uh, Biden's going to get in anybody's way, and he's not going to offer any pardons. The only thing that can mess them up, and that's only on the federal side, is if Trump says, all right, I'm going to resign on the 15th of January or whatever. Uh, Mike, take over and issue me and my family and everybody else blanket pardons. And if he gets that, because, you know, what the hell does defense care? He gets to go down in history for a few days as, a, you know, the 46th president of the United States. And, 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 and he has a done deal. And he's going to do anything to support him, I think, because he's been so far up his backside for so long, he's going to need a flashlight and a shovel to get out of there. So... Um, it's going to be very interesting to watch what happens over these next few days. I think he's just going to go and pout in Mar-a-Lago and basically give up on the job. And, uh, you know, who knows where it all ends. I, I hope you're right, my friend. Thank you so much, my friend, for your time and your intelligence. My pleasure. And uh, your optimistic take on uh, the denouement of uh, Mr. Trump's uh, reign of error. Have you got nowhere to go but up, buddy? <laughs> Good point. Good point. And we're going to jump right into the Justice Report with Janine Maloff. Uh, here we go. So tonight, post-election, I'm going to discuss the deleterious effects that horse race reporting or horse race journalism has on elections and really on democracy itself. There would be no justice if the journalism of the day cheapens itself by providing a handicapping scorecard for the high-stakes rulers of the political class, the 1% donors. While the gambling shamans such as dual sports and political commentator Nate Silver build careers off this horse race mentality, the public is simultaneously denied substantive coverage of pressing issues. This political horse race reporting has been basically replacing this, this political horse race reporting has been basically replacing that necessary substantive coverage of important issues since the 1970s and the GOP comeback featuring an entire uh, coterie of what is, in my opinion, liars and useful idiots culminating in the tragic elevation of Donald Trump. 
A Trump presidency, in my opinion, could not have occurred without such horse race reporting replacing actual journalism. So this is horse race reporting and what I call the Nate Silver effect. So again, for many decades, mainstream, in other words, corporate media have treated national elections in particular for Congress and especially the presidency as a horse race. Like any horse race, there are those who gamble on who might win and they use a system called handicapping to improve the chances they will call the race winner as beating all other comers. <clears throat> there are also those who accuse this method as manipulation engineered to, to increase wagers and affect the outcomes. When horse race experts push certain candidates or even repeatedly mention certain possible outcomes, the wagers are best either increase or decrease dramatically as far too many people love the idea of a winner. Such horse race political reporting not only manipulates the public, but it is frequently used to replace, as I said before, substantive reporting on issues of the day with the brain-dead horse race. Horse race, excuse me, horse race reporting does a disservice to journalism, and as I said before, to democracy itself. Today we're going to look at this phenomenon. The king of horse race reporting is statistician Nate Silver. Silver is an expert on statistical analysis and baseball. He is not any sort of expert on the important policy issues of the day, and his elevation to political commentator on ABC News constitutes what I would consider to be journalistic malpractice. So what do we know about Nate? He's the king of the horse race. He's a statistician and writer. He analyzed baseball and elections. He's the founder and co-editor of uh, his publication called 538, and as I said, he's a special correspondent for ABC News. He gained recognition for de developing this thing called Dakota, which basically is a system that forecasts the performance and career development of Major League Baseball players, and he sold it. And then Silver was named as one of the world's most hundred most influential people by time in 09, because in 08, during the U.S. presidential election of 08, um, he successfully predicted the outcomes in 49 of the 50 states. And in 2012, in the 2012 uh, U.S. POTUS election, um, the forecasting system correctly predicts the winner in all 50 states. But 538, like a lot of others, failed to predict the rise of Donald Trump. And this is something where, you know, Nate Silver likes to brag about how he's all about um, data journalism. But data journalism can mean so many things. Most importantly, Nate Silver's brand of corporate, I'm just going to call it stenography, backed up by statistics, only propels the horse race at the expense of important coverage of important issues. You can make a statistic, say anything you want to. Uh, essentially, statistics is the math of semantics. You know, you're comparing and contrasting. And you can narrow the scope or widen the scope and make and basically make a statement about anything. So the consequence of first race reporting, what the research says, this is a piece in um, Journalist Resource by Denise Marie Ordway, is written in September of 2019. And it basically says when journalists cover elections, and they focus on the horse race, who's winning, who's lo losing, instead of policy issues, candidates and the news industry suffers, and that's according to a big body of research. 
um, media scholars then call it the horse race. And it really frames elections as what they call a competitive game. And they rely very much on public opinion polls. And then the most attention goes to either the front runners or the underdogs, whoever's building drama. But again, you're looking at the race as opposed to issues. Um, Professor Thomas E. Patterson from the, Har- the Harvard Kennedy School's Bradley Professor of Government in the Press also weighed in. And, um, you know, Nate Silver, along with many other corporate stenographers masquerading a journal- as journalists, should pay attention. So Professor Patterson also said election coverage does not delve, does not go into policy issues. Um, in fact, he did a study, and what he found was policy issues only amounted to 10% of news coverage in 2016. And that was part of a research series that Professor Patterson did. And the bulk of coverage really concentrated on the horse race. To quote Professor Patterson, quote, the horse race has been the dominant theme of election news since the 1970s, and news organizations began to conduct their own election polls. And that, end quote, and that was in, 20, in a December 2016 working paper titled News Coverage of the 2016 General Election, How the Press Failed the Voters. To continue, to quote Professor Patterson, quote, since then polls have proliferated to the point where well over 100 separate polls, more than a new poll each day, were reported in major news outlets during the 2016 general election, end quote. And part of the damage it does is there's been multiple decades of academic studies that found linkage between horse race reporting and increased distrust in the political arena, including politicians, increased distrust in news outlets. Um, increase, it also has been linked to an totally uninformed electorate and also linked to inaccurate reporting of opinion poll data. Excuse me. Horse race coverage also had some other side issues. They found that it was uh, detrimental to female political candidates because often women that are running for office want to focus on policy issues because they're just they want to build credibility. They can't coast like the males can. It also gives an advantage to what they say what they call novel and unusual candidates, i.e., Donald Trump. And it really does um, shortchange third-party candidates. They're just basically ignored because they don't generate enough excitement. Basically, horse race reporting is treating political contests uh, that are important, like um, reality TV, and reduces it to garbage. And in my opinion, Donald Trump couldn't have catapulted to the Oval Office without what I call the schlock garbage reporting. And the study also found that horse race reporting, it it documented that it did help catapult Donald Trump to that lead position in 2016. And that was another paper in Patterson's series titled News Coverage of the 2016 Presidential Primaries, Horse Race Reporting Has Consequences. Professor Patterson was also quoted saying, quote, the media's tendency to allocate coverage based on winning and losing affects voters' decisions presses attention to early winners and its tendency to afford them more positive coverage than their competitors is not designed to boost their chances, but that's a predictable effect, end quote. And so 
there were academic studies. Most of these were published in peer-reviewed journals, and they went further into investigating the cons- very real, con- excuse me, the very real consequences of forced race reporting from multiple different angles. And what they and so they looked at how journalists also use and interpret opinion polls in the election stories. Excuse me. The question I have is this. Is horse race reporting manipulating our elections in favor of corporate candidates who despise democracy itself or make a mockery of it? And how much responsibility does horse race reporting bear in this disastrous administration of Donald Trump? Now, there was also in 2018 in a journal called Communication Research, another paper, The Consequences of Strategic News Coverage for Democracy, a meta-analysis by Alon Zoisner. And Professor Zoisner is with the Hebrew University of Jerusalem. Um, Professor Zoisner analyzed 32 studies published or released between 1997 to 2016 to examine what they called the effects of strategic news coverage. And Zoisner um, describes strategic news coverage as the following, quote, the coverage of politics that often focuses on politicians' strategies and tactics as well as their campaign performance and position at the polls, end quote. And what I point out is as opposed to actual issues and policy records, which we, which we need to know to be informed voters. Now, along the main takeaways, <clears throat> excuse me, this kind of reporting increases public cynicism towards politics and the issues as part of that coverage. And maybe that's one of the goals of the people pushing horse race reporting. Greater cynicism also leads to voter disengagement. So Zarzan wrote that, quote, this coverage leads to a specific public perception of politics that is dominated by a focus on political actors' motivations for gaining power rather than their substantive concerns for the common good. And he adds that young people were really susceptible to the effects of this type of horse race coverage because they don't really have as much experience and, and, and much context to compare against. Um, and so there's a real quote, they, the young people, quote, may develop these feelings of mistrust toward political elites, which will persist throughout their, their adult lives, end quote. So Zoyser is confirming that this horse race reporting also leads to a sadly uninformed electorate. And to quote Zoyser, quote, this finding erodes the media's informative value because journalists cultivate a specific knowledge about politics that fosters political alienation rather than helping citizens make rational decisions based on substantive information. Framing politics as a game to be won inhibits the development of the informed citizenship because the public is mostly familiar with the political rivalries instead of actually knowing what the substantive debate is about, end quote. And so... This is something that really we need to address. Um, Harvard's Professor Patterson again um, on how the horse race reporting contributed to Donald Trump as a woefully inferior candidate with zero experience in politics to gain the advantage and be elevated in 2016. And this is from a working paper for the for the um, 
Harvard Kennedy School, December 2016, uh, titled News Coverage of the 2016 Presidential Primaries, Horsefish Referring His Consequences, and the paper found, among other things, <coughs> excuse me, that practically 60% of the election news that was analyzed during that period characterized the election as this competitive game. And Trump received the most coverage of any candidate that was going after the Republican nomination. In the final five weeks of the primary campaign, the press gave Trump more coverage than frontrunners Hillary Clinton and Bernie Sanders. This was in 2016. To quote Patterson's findings, quote, the media's obsession with Trump during the primaries meant that the Republican race was afforded far more coverage than the Democratic race, even though it lasted five weeks longer. End quote. Um, he also said, quote, the Republican contest got 63% of the total coverage between January 1st and June 7th compared with the Democrats, 37%, a margin of more than three to two, end quote. So Patterson's paper really goes into some detail to look at not only the tone of the coverage, but the proportion as well as how it was doled out between Republican and Democratic candidates and during the primary campaign. And, you know, he also commented that the nominating process itself is structured in such a way that it really does lend itself to horse race reporting. And he, to quote Professor Patterson again, quote, tasks with covering 50 contests cram- crammed into a space of several months, journalists are unable to take their eyes or minds off the horse race or to resist the temptation to build their narratives around the candidate's position in the race, end quote. And, <clears throat> sorry, this horse race journalism, it doesn't just affect the image of a candidate. It can, and I think often does, influence voter decisions. So, you know, once again, this is something that we need to stop. Now, there was also a study published in Political Communication in 2015 by Johanna Dunaway and Regina G. Lawrence. And um, it's titled, What Predicts the Name Frame, Media Ownership, Electoral Context, and Campaign News. And this study found that corporate-owned and large-chain newspapers were more often publishing stories that basically framed the elections in the, in the context of this horse race. Um, more so than, than a newspaper that had a single owner. And we also found that horse race coverage was more prevalent in very close races and the weeks leading up to an election. Now, the researchers, Joanna Dunaway is an associate professor of communication at Texas A&M, and Regina Lawrence is the associate dean of the School of Journalism and Communication in Portland. Um, and they analyzed... Over 10,000 articles published by practically 260 newspapers, and what they found was that privately owned large-chain publications behave in a pattern that's very similar to publications controlled by shareholders. So, and what they found was that, quote, given a close race, newspapers of many types will tend to converge on a game-frame election narrative, and by extension, Stories focusing on who's up, who's down, will crowd out stories about the policy issues that are presumably being elected to address. 
And as the name to election variable show, this pattern will intensify across the course of a close race, end quote. And once again, female politicians are more often hurt by this because they, they really do try to focus on issues. And when you really think about this, you know, there's a lot of studies here. But at the end of the day, what we're really talking about is the fact that when we, when we reduce our political contest, especially for high political office, to the level of gambling, like you would on a horse race, then we not only cheapened it, but we are denying the public the right to know the issues, the right to question politicians and demand answers, and the right to examine a politician's past record and fact check. This should not be cutesy. This is our public duty, okay? But it's, it's not happening. And so, you know, there was another study. Um, this was in a journal called Mass Communication Society in 2015, titled Contagious Media Effects, How Media Use, how media use and exposure to game frame, game frame news influence media trust. And it was asking the question, how does framing politics as this strategic game, as this horse race, influence public trust in journalism? And these, and they looked at Swedish news coverage. So this is really all over the, the world. And they, suggest, they found that it does lower trust in all forms of print and broadcast news media except tabloids. And I can only presume that people that get their news from tabloids don't really care about facts anyway. That's my opinion. Um, the authors noted that earlier research um, indicates that people who don't trust mainstream media do turn to tabloids. Um, and to quote them, to quote the authors, David Nicholas Hopman, who's an associate professor at the University of Southern Denmark, Adam Shahata, who's a senior lecturer at the University of Gothenburg, and Jester Street. Jesper Strombeck, a professor at the University of Gothenburg, quote, by framing politics as a strategic game and thereby undermining trust not only in politics but also in the media, the media may thus simultaneously weaken the incentives for people to follow the news in mainstream media and strengthen the incentives for people to turn to alternative news sources. And so the researchers went on to say, quote, taken together, these findings suggest as the mistrust caused by the framing of politics as a strategic game is contagious in two senses. For all media except the tabloids, the mistrust toward politicians implied by the framing of politics as a strategic game is intended to the media making use of this particular framing. Where, I'm sorry, uh, the mistrust toward... For all media except the tabloids, the mistrust toward, pol toward politicians implied by the framing of politics as a strategic game is extended to the media making use of this particular framing, whereas in the case of tabloids, it is extended to other media, end quote. Now here's another article by Benjamin Toff in Journalism 2019, and it's how you, journalists use opinion polls, and it's ironically titled, The Nate Silver Effect on Political Journalism, Gate Crushers, Gatekeepers, and Changing Newsroom Practices uh, Around Coverage of Public Opinion Polls. And it was... This study was based on in-depth interviews with 41 U.S. journalists, media analysts, and public opinion pollsters. And it documented how changes in how news outlets cover public opinion or political events. And it revealed two things. It revealed that, quote, evidence of eroding internal newsroom standards, but which polls to reference 
in coverage and how to adjudicate between surveys. Uh, Toss, an assistant professor at the University of Missouri, I'm sorry, University of Minnesota's Harvard School of Journalism and Mass Communication. And one reporter he interviewed called it the Silver Effect. Um, and they talked about how journalists and polling professionals were both groups were concerned um, because they relied on poll firms' reputations uh, that the polls they were receiving they were receiving had some quality. And they really didn't know enough to be able to determine the poll sampling design and other methodological details. They didn't know much about statistics themselves. And, you know, they point out how that advocacy organizations can take advantage of a journalist's lack of understanding. And so reporters wind up disseminating their messages, um, which are slanted a certain way. And this is how voters are manipulated. Um, so, you know, and, and basically they also went on to say, quote, the challenge of interpreting public opinion as a collective one and scholarship, which merely chastises journalists for their shortcomings, does not offer a productive path forward. And I would agree with that. But once again, if corporate journalists actually insisted on covering the issues, fact check, check politicians' actual voting records, and, and didn't let didn't allow politicians to get away with in, encouraging this horse race thing. We'd have better reporting. For too long, both sides allowed politicians to lower the level of our discussion and not insist on some real answers. And I, I'm more of the Katie Porter school. Okay, I, I think we have a right and, and a duty to challenge anyone who's running for office to tell us exactly what their positions are and why. And, you know, once again, um, that was, uh, so I'm going to skip that because there's so many studies here, I, there's no way you can get through it all. Um, Thomas Patterson, again, um, he's with the Harvard Kennedy School, Sherman Student Center on Media, Politics, and Public Policy. Um, and, and once again, what he found in his report they concluded that in 2016, they analyzed coverage of Trump, Cruz, Rubio, Kasich, Hillary Clinton, and Bernie Sanders, and the questions Patterson investigated include the following, quote, why did Trump receive so much more coverage than other presidential candidates, and why was his coverage positive in tone when the Republican race was still being contested and yet negative in tone after it had been decided? Also, quote, why was Rubio's coverage so much more negative than that of a uh, of another unsuccessful Republican, Republican Senator Cruz. Quote, why was Clinton's coverage substantially more negative than Sanders, and why did Sanders get so much less coverage than she did? And quote, why did a candidate's character and policy positions receive so little attention relative to the candidate's chances of winning? End quote. And it is, these are all very important questions. Um, and, you know, we have to demand something far better than this. We, we just do. Um, we are not getting good coverage at all. Um, there was another study, and what it shows is that percentage of coverage, politics, political contests as a competitive game, 56% of the coverage. Campaign process, 33% of, of, the, of the coverage. And substituting concerns, 11% of the coverage. And that was according to... Um, a study um, 
by the Shorenstein Center. Yeah. So these are. This is why people have turned off, and perhaps that's the end game. Perhaps both parties have discovered that if they just turn people off, they will become so apathetic that the politicians can get away with pretty much anything, and no one's going to ask any difficult questions. Um, and this happens on both sides of the political aisle. All right, this is something um, that you know, even when it's a progressive that we like, like AOC. Once again, or Cory Bush, who's heading to Congress, partisan zone, they get asked silly questions, even on the Young Turks, you know, about their hairstyle, all right, when we should be talking about what is it you really want to get achieved. Um, will progressives, you know, these, will progressives have to leave the Democratic Party in order to get anything done and caucus with the Dems when it's convenient for them? None of this is happening, and this is, again, I think really attributed to the horse race mentality. And this is something that we have to change. Um, you know, in conclusion, horse race political part reporting has dominated political journalism since the 1970s. It is to our detriment as any semblance of an anemic democracy um, to allow such sloppy reporting to continue. It results in a citizenry woefully unable to identify and understand the actual substantive issues of the day. Furthermore, horse race report political reporting also helps to create an overly cynical American public, and that cynicism that 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 cynicism is what contributes in part to the political apathy we see among younger, unaffiliated voters. Such apathy works to support. GOP and the racist, misogynist, anti-worker policies. Since it is the possible GOP opposition that might not bother to vote. We saw this in the low voting numbers in 2016. Now we have what I call the Nate Silver effect. This is the situation. Political polling and statistical analysis, which is legitimate for campaigns to use for strategic purposes, it's been abused to manipulate the public as basically a polling service like a political bookie and so is Nate Silver as they handicap the horse race. Excuse me. Sorry about this, guys. While Nate Silver cannot be blamed for the situation, it is his elevation to political commentator which is obscenely ludicrous. Nate Silver's only political expertise is handicapping the race, which, again, is the equivalent function of a bookie giving giving stacked odds on a rigged race. Sorry, guys. Instead of Nate Silver pontificating with statistics, the media, all the media, should be demanding answers to tough questions on on every issue of the day. Media should be fact-checking and challenging politicians on their claims when the evidence looks contrary to campaign statements. A democracy relies on an informed citizenry to survive. None of us can accurately assess what politicians have done or not done when we're being deprived of this very discussion. Yet that is exactly what horse race political reporting has done. This disservice hurts all of us. 
as it denies the public a right to know the issues and have those who run for office grilled on their collective records. Instead, we have a system that values a candidate's chances of winning as opposed to their fitness for high office. <clears throat> That's why we wind up with continually inadequate candidates. You know, when Ronald Reagan first ran for office, people laughed. Yeah, he was governor of California, but he was an actor. He didn't know anything about policy. And then when George W. ran, we laughed again. Because once again, woefully inadequate. And then we sink even lower to a malicious, what can only be called neo-Nazi, know-nothing like Donald Trump. And they're out, but was substituted for substantive discussion of important issues of the day and demanding answers from these people and demanding to know what they would do under certain circumstances has been reduced to, again, this superficial horse race. And there's something to be said in sociology. People like to actually back a winner, but that's not what this should be about. We deserve journalists who will ask the, who will not only ask the difficult questions, but demand answers repeatedly, and that they will fact check and 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 not accept non-answers and nonsense answers from politicians. And we deserve that as opposed to the present acceptable unof, the present unacceptable unofficial system of skills obfuscation and lies, whether the lies of omission or blatant lies, they're still not the full truth. And I maintain that the abuse we have suffered under the Trump administration could not have occurred if the media had done their job. And that's my report. Okay, that's it for us, for PNN. On this Sunday, November 8th, please tune in on Thursdays for the Environmental Justice Report with Jenny Moff. And we will see you again next Sunday right here. See you then.